Machine learning tools are rapidly maturing. TensorFlow gave developers an open-source version of Google's internal machine learning framework. Cloud computing provides a cost-effective, accessible way of training models. Edge computing allows for low-latency deployment of models. But even if you're a kid with a laptop who has learned all the machine learning algorithms, read all of the deep learning textbooks, and figured out how to use AWS, all of the tooling and education in the world doesn't change the fact that you still need data to build models. This illustrates why we need data as a service. A kid with a laptop has access to infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. As these tools build on each other, there has been an explosion of high-leverage software products. But the world of data sets remains crude and underdeveloped. Think about some data sets that you could take advantage of. The number of emergency room patients that come into a hospital with chest pain. The size of the average coffee mug. The principal component breakdown of sidewalk concrete in San Francisco. SafeGraph is a company that offers data sets as a service. Orin Hoffman is the CEO of SafeGraph, and he joins the show to discuss why he started building SafeGraph and how he thinks about the state of publicly accessible data. And what would be the upside if people had access to all of those various data sets like emergency room patients and coffee mugs and sidewalk concrete? Oren was previously on the podcast, and I always enjoy talking to him. This was a great episode. I think you're going to like it as well. Full disclosure, LiveRamp is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, LiveRamp being the company that Oren created prior to SafeGraph. And before we get to the episode, I want to mention SoftwareDaily.com. Software Daily is a place to post your software projects and get feedback and find collaborators. We would love to see what you're building. If you have an open source application or a side project you've been tinkering with or an academic computer science paper that you want to get feedback on, then come to the Software Daily community and post your project. Software Daily is about cool projects and new ideas and creativity. If your project is especially interesting, we will send you a Software Engineering Daily hoodie or a t-shirt, or we'll even have you on the podcast to discuss what you're building. So we'd love to see you on softwaredaily.com. And with that, let's get to this episode with Oren Hoffman. Apps today are built on a wide range of backends, from traditional databases like Postgres to MongoDB and Elasticsearch to file systems like S3. When it comes to analytics, the diversity and scale of these formats makes delivering data science and BI workloads very challenging. Building data pipelines seems like a never-ending job, as each new analytical tool requires designing from scratch. There's a new open-source project called Dremio that is designed to simplify analytics on all these sources. It's also designed to handle some of the hard work, like scaling performance of analytical jobs. Dremio is the team behind Apache Arrow, a new standard for end-memory columnar data analytics. Arrow has been adopted across dozens of projects, like Pandas, to improve the performance of analytical workloads on CPUs and GPUs. It's free and open source. It's designed for everyone, from your laptop to clusters of over 1,000 nodes. Check out Dremio today at dremio.com sedaily 
Dremio solved hard engineering problems to build their platform. And you can hear about how it works under the hood by checking out our interviews with Dremio CTO Jacques Nadeau, as well as the CEO Tomer Shiran. And at dremio.com slash sedaily, you can find all the necessary resources to get started with Dremio for free. I'm really excited about Dremio. The shows we did about it were really technical and really interesting. If you like those episodes or you like Dremio itself, be sure to tweet at DremioHQ and let them know you heard about it from Software Engineering Daily. Thanks again to Dremio and check it out at dremio.com slash sedaily to learn more. Oren Hoffman, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. This is the third interview I've done with you, and it's always interesting and exciting, and you always leave me with some insights to think about for the next several days, so Great. thanks for making the time. <laughs> so you have written about data centralization recently, and that is a topic that's at the heart of what you're building here at SafeGraph. And data centralization, from the way that you write about it, is the gravity of data that happens at Google or Facebook or Amazon or these other data monoliths. Describe the state of data centralization as you see it. Well, it's really a worry about the future rather than necessarily a worry about the present. But there are different types of futures that we could have. And so one future could be a future where most of the world's interesting data lives with a small number of companies, maybe a dozen or so really big companies. And if you believe in machine learning, and if you believe a lot of really great innovations are going to happen on top of data, then they may have an opportunity to have some sort of monopolization on some of these really great innovations that could be happening. Doesn't mean they'll have all the innovations, but it could mean that they'll have many more of those innovations that happen within those companies. It also inevitably could also mean that there'll be fewer innovations. If you only have one company that has a certain type of data, um, that company might not be thinking in many different directions. And so you can imagine a scenario where there might be fewer innovations in cancer research or fewer innovations in economics or fewer innovations in sociology or, you know, whatever your passion is. And so uh, a second world, future world could be a world where there is some sort of opener data, more open data utility, where you can access data in a safe environment and more companies can have access to that data. So the, probably the best analogy to that would be compute. So today, basically anybody who has at least a technical background can access compute. You can use AWS, you can use Azure, you can use Google Compute. You have to be technical because it's not easy to go use it. And it does cost money. You have to be you have to pay for it and you have to be able to pay for it. But it's but it's fairly democratized. It's easy to access and you can spin up machines, etc. There would be it would be really great in the future world if it was similar with data. And so if there was a easier way to access data and basically anybody who had maybe some technical ability and had, you know, could pay for it and had a few other kind of core things around privacy and in the right environment could use data and be able to innovate on top of data. Over the last 10 years, we have seen the rise of some new data collectors. There are companies like Uber, Airbnb, Stripe, and they have been able to accumulate data sets that are on par with the larger 
tech companies that have been around for much longer than that, Amazon, Google, Facebook. Does that make things less bleak? I think Uber, Airbnb, I'm not as familiar with Stripe, but I would say Uber and Airbnb are like probably have three to four orders of magnitude less data than Google or Amazon or Tencent or something like that. So I, I wouldn't even put them in anywhere near in the same ballpark of data. The amount of data a company like Uber has is actually quite small. They have really great data about their own business, and they do an incredibly good job about understanding their business and collecting data about their business and understanding what's happening within their business. But their business really represents a very, very small fraction of the world. Whereas a company like Google or Tencent, they have they see everything outside their business as well. So I think last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about the diminishing returns of data and the fact that maybe there aren't diminishing returns where you would expect. And in fact, the difference between 100 million training examples and a billion training examples is quite significant. Has that panned out in the last year or so as you've been looking more deeply into this? Yeah, I, I mean... It may not be necessarily training examples, but if like if everything is happening in your environment, then you 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 can know a ton about things in your environment. And you can optimize things for your environment, but much more difficult for you to understand another environment. So if you like know a lot about traffic in San Francisco, et cetera, and there's a lot of like weird idiosyncrasies of traffic in San Francisco, that's like somewhat applicable to traffic in Palo Alto, maybe less applicable to traffic in Costa Rica. And so, you know, it just gets less and less and less, certainly less applicable to air control traffic that's happening in the air or submarine, you know, movement. Or, so it can give you a very nice thing about your particular problem, but somewhat hard, harder to generalize to other problems. Having more data about lots of different things certainly allows you to, to do really well in those things. So, you know, you can have the classic would be like labeled photos of cats and they're incredibly well labeled, can tell you a lot about cats, but, you know, might not really tell you anything about cancer. Hmm. Do you have a sense for how well somebody could replicate the profile that Google has on you if they just did things like scraping my Twitter or scraping my Facebook, my Quora? There's probably a bunch of third-party tracking companies that could contribute to this fairly comprehensive profile. Do you have an idea of how closely that would asymptote to a model of what Google would have on you? Let's assume you're a power user of Google. So you use Gmail, you use Android. I think it would be very difficult. So if you think of just like all of your call logs in, in on Android, all of your location of where you go, um, your all of your everything that you you talk about on your email, assuming you're you know fairly well powered user of Gmail, you know you're just your phone, so just like the HTTP traffic of your phone, all your search history on Google. So you know you might use Chrome. Chrome has a lot of information as well about what you do. So you know we're talking about the digital world. We're talking about the physical world now. Not to necessarily Google uses all that information, and and I would presume they use it in a very privacy compliant way, and they do a lot of really good things about it. But you know certainly that meta information doing it in a very privacy compliant way could do a lot of really good in society, and they could solve a lot of society's problems. And I think they should try to solve society's problems with that meta information, as long as it, it's, it's, it's good for you as an individual and good for society. Okay, I think we've 
teed up the motivation for a data as a service company. So when you're thinking about designing SafeGraph, when I think about the developer experience for acquiring infrastructure as a service, that developer experience has gotten quite good. How does that compare to the experience that you're trying to design for the data as a service company? What what would you like the experience to be for the product? Where we are today and where we're going is you know quite quite different and quite aspirational. So I can kind of give you a sense of what I would like to see as as a developer or what I would like to see as something good for the world. You know what I what I would like to see is the ability for developers and researchers and innovators to be able to access data sets that are potentially incredibly sensitive and be able to run algorithms on those data sets, et cetera, without having to see the underlying data of those data sets. So where they can actually do really interesting things on the data without hurting the privacy of, because sometimes the most interesting data sets, let's say for instance, um, if we're going to deal with oncology treatments, for cancer. That is a really sensitive data. It's not data that you would probably want floating out there. You know, you wouldn't want like millions of researchers being able to see the underlying data. But if you could build a system that somehow could securely tokenize that data and allow people to run algorithms on that data and run allow people to uh, do machine learning on that data without seeing the underlying data, we could really make the world a better place. And I would like to see that with Medicare data, for instance. I'd like to see that with the NHS data, with the VA data on the healthcare side, on public policy side. It would be really great if like you could do that on tax records. So like the IRS data or some other type of data. Have you read any of Raj Chetty's papers? He's an economist at Stanford. They're unbelievable. I'd encourage your, your readers to go if your readers like academic papers. He's published, he, he publishes probably some of the most interesting economics papers in the world today. And he's one of the top economists in the world. He's an incredibly smart guy. But he has an extreme unfair advantage, which is that he has he's one of very few people in the world that have access to the IRS data. And the IRS data is a longitudinal study of like hundreds, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people over decades where you can see like what somebody does, at least from their income, and then you could see how their kids do over time. And so you could say for kids whose parents were in the bottom 20 percentile of income, how did they do over time? How did they do per place? You know, it turns out like kids in Salt Lake City do better than from the bottom 20 percentile than kids in many, many other areas. So that was a very interesting finding from one of his papers. So then well, why is that? I don't know. So, you know, you can really start to dive in. Maybe they're doing something better there than they're doing. Or maybe it, there's some other thing that explains that. But these things can be really helpful from a public policy perspective, from other types of perspectives. How does all these things work? And he is an incredibly smart guy. And I'm really glad that he has access to the IRS. And I'm really glad that the IRS is forward-thinking enough where they're, where they're giving someone access to that data. But it'd be great if every great economist and sociologist and political scientist had access to that same data. Now, you can't do it today because, because it's really sensitive. But there could be a system in the future where it could be it, where you could run operations on that data, and you could be confident where you would not be able to de-identify somebody in any way. One of the reasons that that sensitivity arises is because of this question of k anonymity, where 
if you give somebody a data set that is naively anonymized, if you just tell them, oh, this is an anonymous data set, like in with the Netflix prize, for example, and it's not sufficiently anonymized, then people can use certain methods to de-anonymize that data. So what kinds of work have you been doing around K-anonymity? First of all, all this stuff doesn't exist today. So, you know, the fact that I don't, I wouldn't suggest that the IRS build a system today to allow everyone to access it. I think that's probably a recipe for disaster today. But you could definitely see a scenario where people could, and and getting access to the underlying data probably doesn't make sense, but being able to run operations like query the data and ask certain questions of that data and have the query adopt to the data set. You can also, there's a lot of great things you can do with data with, you can change data. So you can start to change data enough where it actually can a- answer all the questions without, so, you know, with things like differential privacy, et cetera. So you can do a lot of different things. Where What's you're, where dif- differential Differential privacy, privacy is essentially like, uh, there's a lot of different ways to explain it, but one simple way is just thinking about like making lots of minor changes in a data set and for individual data within a data set where it doesn't change the overall arching questions that you might ask of the data. So you can imagine like a credit card data set where they might, you know, swap things. So, you know, you might, this anonymous user bought from Netflix and they bought from Starbucks and another anonymous user bought from Burger King and they went to the San Francisco airport. And you can imagine like, you know, one swapping the Netflix and the Burger King or something and, and doing a few other types of things where it doesn't change it and it'd be really hard to, uh, to de-anonymize somebody because you're essentially creating synthetic data. You're creating fake data from real data, but, but it basically is able to still answer some of the same exact questions. Yeah, you could also, in many cases, probably just give people a subset of the data and it would get somewhat close you can just get a subset of the data that is sufficiently anonymized and that kind of thing could work sure i mean there's lots of different things that one could do the more data the better because just the more questions you're going to be able to ask you know even if you have a hundred million if you have data about a hundred million people or something like that if you start cutting it a lot you can get down to like a thousand people pretty fast so having more is better but having some is better than having none often how much research has been done in this area there's a lot of research from a lot of, and, and I, can, I can get you some stuff for maybe your show notes later. There's some smart folks in Berkeley that I've, that I've been reading some of the things that they're doing. There's a lot of things going on in a lot of different places. Uh, Palantir has been doing some things when they're when they doing some. So there's a lot of companies that have been thinking about it. There's a lot of people have been thinking about it. I know Apple has a lot of uh, stuff internally going on about it. Because one of the things, like, even as a company, you might be worried that somebody in your company might access the data. So you might want to be running these stats on the data, but you're worried that you don't want to have too many people in your company accessing the data. So you can create synthetic data of your own data in your company, put that in a place where someone can, you know, put query it or run analytics on it or whatever you're going to do on that particular data set. So there's a lot of really, really cool things that you can do on data. I think we're still in the very early days. It's fraught with potential disasters right now. So uh, you, you probably don't want to do it yet with the most sensitive data. There's probably a lot of smart people that could maybe figure out how to you know, re-identify a given person, like you know what happened in some of that Netflix stuff that you're talking about. So I think we're still in the early days, but 
I'm confident that this is something we could probably figure out over the next decade. I don't think it will be easy, but there's a lot of people working on it. I think it's much more likely we'll be able to do this than do self-driving cars or a lot of other things that we're doing. So I think we should be able to figure this out. And it, and it really could change humanity. So it's, it's worth figuring out. The question of how you get the data, I'm not sure how willing you are to, to talk about it. I know last time I think you, you didn't want to talk about it too much, but is there any extent to which you can talk about the, the data sets that you're getting right now and ways to bootstrap this graph you're building? Yeah, I think I think it really just depends on the company that's there. So SafeGraph's really about geospatial data. So we're, we're truly trying to understand the physical world and understand how people interact with the physical world. So that's what we do. And so it, 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 you know, it's quite narrow. So, you know, we don't do anything with like the IRS data or Medicare data or something like that. The, maybe I would love to do that one day, you know, but I, I, don't, I don't know that we'll do that in the short term. I think you can imagine lots. I could see over the next decade, lots of different types of data companies springing up that are focused on the truth of a particular subset of data. And it could be could be some sort of simple label data set. And I think a lot of governments will be doing this. I mean, historically, a lot of governments have focused on things like weather data. That's a really valuable data set is having really good weather data. Uh, most weather data out there is actually much worse than you think. The sensors that collect weather data are quite bad. They're not calibrated. They're all you know. You have one in the one in the sun and one in the shade. You know they collect. Some of them will collect wind in different ways, or they'll collect they'll collect precipitation. And so, just the sensors itself could be quite off. Uh, maybe maybe the average of the sensors is good, but 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 understanding the microclimates can be somewhat bad. And you could imagine like phones collecting barometer data over time being like much better than the sensors and crowdsourcing some of that stuff could be really, really helpful and understanding. So that's just like one example of a lot of governments have been really helpful in just mapping data. So like satellite data, a lot of satellite data is available. Or you, you also have companies like Planet Labs that has uh, satellite data today fairly inexpensively. So there's lots of different types of data sets that can be either can be free they don't have to be free. They can you can pay for them. I, uh, nothing wrong with paying for data. We sell data, so nothing wrong with paying for data. But just the ability to be able to get really high quality data is hard because there's not that much data out there. If you want to train, if you want to do like voice, if you want to train voice or do something like that, it is quite difficult today to do that. There's a lot, any other thing that you want to go train is hard. But these data sets exist. One of the data sets that is a great data set if you're a trader is is price per ticker per time, you know, for stock prices. You know, if you want to go back to AT&T, you can go back and back test over 100 years of AT&T. Now the tick 100 years ago might be by day, the tick now might be less than a 10th of a second, but that data is super high quality. There's probably a few like key entry errors over those last hundred years, but it's probably 99.99% correct. And, uh, and so it's just a really great ongoing temporal data set that allows you to understand the economy or understand markets or understand other types of things with. A thank you to our sponsor, Datadog a cloud monitoring platform bringing full visibility to dynamic infrastructure and applications. Create beautiful dashboards, set powerful machine learning-based alerts, and collaborate with your team to resolve performance issues. 
You can start a free trial today and get a free t-shirt from Datadog by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 200 technologies, including Google Cloud Platform, AWS, Docker, PagerDuty, and Slack. With fast installation and setup, plus APIs and open source libraries for custom instrumentation, Datadog makes it easy for teams to monitor every layer of their stack in one place. But don't take our word for it. You can start a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Datadog to get started. Thank you to Datadog. So when you're starting this company, you could choose from any domain of data sets and you chose location and mapping data or location and geographic data as the base case of that data set type that you would be inducting upon and eventually building this network and vast quantities of data sets. What was the the reasoning around choosing location and geographic data as the first one? Well, I mean, these things tend to be like very personal. So, you know, my case and the case of the my co-founders, we're, we're those people who really like maps. And we're kind of like probably a lot of people who might be listening when they were younger. You know, I had maps all over my bedroom when I was a kid. I used to just think about maps all the time. Uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very interested in maps. I think it's a very human thing to be very interested in maps, like old maps, maps from back in the day, old cartography from the 1600s. Um, these are things, you know, if you played Dungeons and Dragons, which is uh, spent like tens of thousands of hours playing Dungeons and Dragons, it was all, you know, mapping lots of things and thing, figuring out different maps of different new worlds that you can map. So, uh, and even if you think, even if you have a, an Apple TV, you know, what's the screensaver of Apple TV? It's a, it's like a flying through a city or flying through the jungle. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a such a human thing. So uh, I find maps very interesting. They're still a lot of data about places that are quite imprecise. It's quite hard to actually do something with them. It's really hard to get access to really high quality data. Today, uh, we tried, so that was kind of like how we originally were, were thing, had a different idea and we were trying to get access to high quality data and we weren't able to. So we thought maybe there's a way that we could, and there, it's hard, it's a really hard problem. So there's a lot of statistics, a lot of machine learning, there's a lot of uh, computer vision, a lot of other things you need to do to get really good maps. Do you have to go, like, do it from scratch? Because originally I was thinking, oh, maybe you can just pull all the vendors together and yeah, well, stitch that, them together. That's actually a, good, one, a really good thing to do. So stitching things together is actually really hard, trying to figure out, like, which which things to keep, which not, how do you merge stuff together? When you're doing a merge, people have, you know, it's it's unclear. How do you do a merge? So, you know, the, just two. Well, what's an example of a merge? Well, I mean, a very simple merge might be like, a very simple merge word would be like someone has data about Starbucks on 555 Main Street in El Segundo, California, and another person has the same data about the same Starbucks could be a slightly different address, but the exact same thing. And you want to have, you emerge know, and they may have different quality of data. 
you know, they may have their some some of their data might not jive with each other. Let's say store hours, or you know, the the color of the Starbucks, or the number of people that work there. Or you can imagine a lot of like really interesting, you know, whether it's on a, a earthquake fault line, or you can go down the list of gazillion different types of data. The geometry of the Starbucks, the lat long coordinates, the polygon, the you know, all all the different. Where's the door? Where's the exits? And when's the last time? You know, the, there's public information. When's the last time it got inspected? You know, if there are core things that they have to like hourly wages or other core things that they may have to deal with, etc. Okay, then how do you do that? How do you reconcile two data sources? Do you have to rate the data sources and? Yeah, recognizing recon, reconciling two data sources is not that problematic. But if you have thousands of data sources, in, in our case, we have thousands, thousands of data sources, and they may conflict, or they may have the, you know, may have lots of different things. And um, doing doing some of those merges are quite can be really really hard to do. And that's one of the areas that we pride ourselves with. We had a similar problem my last company. Um, so when I was at LiveRamp, my last company was doing a lot of the stuff around people. So it's taking all this disparate data about people and putting it together. SafeGraph is, has a similar challenge, but it's about places rather than about people. By the way, I don't know if you know, but LiveRamp became a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Oh, so awesome. All right. Thank you. Well, I hope they're get, hiring some great engineers I off hope, of our advertisements. I hope they are as well. <laughs> so it's a great it's a great place. I, I, I spent uh, almost 10 years there, so I'll, I'll give my own endorsement. It's a great place to work. There we go. Sponsored content. <laughs> yeah. But but you should first apply to SafeGraph. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A quote from your article about open data. People should have the ultimate say in whether or not their data is used for analysis. So I, I agree with you on that. Do you think that should be opt-in or opt-out? Because uh, most people aren't going to even, you know, in, in a consumer-facing application, they aren't even going to look at what they're quote-unquote agreeing to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think these privacy questions are really hard and they're also very personal and it's hard to make broader judgments on for society because everybody has their own personal things about about privacy you know if everyone's different even for myself in some ways i'm very i'm very open in many other ways i'm very closed you know when i go to new york i never write publicly i'm going to new york the main reason is cuz my jewish mother lives in new york and you know i might be there very quick for a business trip and if she finds out i was there and didn't go see her she's going to be very upset at me and i love my mother and i don't want her to be upset at me so you know it sounds like a silly thing but it, it, it if somebody like tweeted out that i was in new york and she found out about it when i was there and you know it could it would be bad so i think everyone has their own personal things very hard to to create these things. So I think the first most important thing is, you know, making sure you're you have good judgment, you're trying to do what's best for the people whose data you have and understand that. So whether you're the whether you're the primary owner, you're Facebook or Google or Tencent or whoever, or you might be a secondary owner or your government entity or you know, or your credit bureau or you know what whatever you are, whoever if you have access to a person's data, you should be doing things that are in the best interest of that person. Now, it's very hard to define that. It's very hard to understand that. At SafeGraph, we we try to think of. And when I was at LiveRamp, also we try to we try to what we do something we call the mom test, which is like we take the collective mom of our employees. You know, are we doing something that's in her best interest? 
are we doing something that you know that's good for or is this like something that's creepy and you know etc and you know and these are great these are not perfect things there to to go figure out and there's not sometimes there's not uh, clear rules as to what you should do or what you should not do or the or the rules are allow you to do maybe more things than you should do and so just because the rules don't allow it doesn't mean you should do it and so understanding some of those things the rules in europe are much more clear than the rules in the u.s and so the rules in europe in some ways are a little bit better if you have an engineering mindset because you just follow the rules and you know it's not up to me to make the rules i don't like making rules about society that's not what i get paid to do that's up to the leaders of the society and the elected officials to make those things and to really and 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 the people themselves to to think about it and so in europe they make like very clear rules about what you do and either you might not like them but at least the rules are clear and you could adhere to them now they have new rules coming out with the, they have this gdpr with some of those rules they are not yet clear but i think over the next you know year year and a half we should we should expect those to be more clear in the united states and maybe some other jurisdictions there are it's more gray it's more open to judgment and more open to interpretation in some ways that can be good because it can allow innovation to happen but in some ways maybe it's not so good because maybe uh, certain people shouldn't shouldn't be making you know shouldn't be thinking about shouldn't be making the rules so maybe maybe there should be some sort of maybe the people quote unquote the people should be making the rules or maybe some other type of higher power that's closer to understanding like what's good for society should be making rules rather than a hedge fund or, or something like that all right, even though you don't like making rules, let's say you get elected as the data policy commissioner <laughs> of the United States, what would your policies be? Well, well, I think these things are, are harder to do than people think. So, you know, like if you think about it from like a techno libertarian kind of perspective, which is probably my my inkling it's like oh yeah i would love it if like all my data was like on the blockchain and i could like rent it out to people and i could like take it back from them whenever i wanted and all and and that like technically could happen but there's not that many people in the world who can actually like deal with that and and actually like keep their data and then you know am i gonna have some sort of like crypto wallet that i'm gonna you know walk around with and it's like a neil stevenson type of thing and you know and that might work for maybe me it might work for you it might work for a lot of our listeners who are extremely tech savvy but certainly not going to work for my mother and we should be doing things that are in you know that really we should be building things in society that actually work really well for her and i i, I don't know so i mean the the real answer to your question is i don't know and i don't I don't think there's an easy solution. And sometimes when people say it should be like this or they have a clear vision of the world, I'm somewhat skeptical of that because it, these are hard problems and I don't expect that we're gonna solve this problem. I think it's always going to be a hard problem. I think we're always gonna be running into issues around this. I think we're gonna pendulum too far one way and pendulum and that will hurt innovation. We might pendulum too far the other way and it will hurt people's privacies and civil liberties. There's gonna be lots of different things Things that happen and we're just gonna we're going to have to find our way and there's going to be unfortunately probably a lot of people that will get hurt along the way even by very well-meaning people people might be trying to do the right thing and inadvertently hurt them you, know, you mentioned the the netflix things the, these people were doing the right thing they were thinking about it the right way they were thoughtful they were smart they didn't have they weren't trying to do something bad it was just movie data it was just movie data right exactly if you remember the aol search data no 
Um, that was a similar thing that also came out. And, you know, you had scenarios like, you know, people, you, know, you had some really bad stuff in there, like people searching for like, how do I kill my spouse and stuff like that. And that was tied to other searches. And so, and, you know, I think some of those people eventually were de-identified, you know, crazy, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. So it was extremely well-meaning. They wanted to give that stuff to academia. So it's not like these are bad people and you know and maybe occasionally you have some bad folks out there but a lot of it is well-meaning people who maybe just missed missed a particular step along the way or there was some sort of bug and you know by the way like anyone is i'm not going to be the i'm not going to be one to throw stones like we all have written code with bugs before we all have missed things we all didn't understand things especially when you work on big things so these are hard things what we need is a resilient society to fix it if it does happen we want to try to prevent bad things from happening of course you don't want a big flood to happen you don't want the levees to break but eventually like if you move fast like things will break bad things will happen you will have a scenario where the self-driving car does kill somebody terrible things will happen and then we need to make sure that we have a resilient society that can grow from that and learn from that and then you know go to the next and take that to the next place have you looked at the the data policies of china in any detail do you do you have any idea how that's because that's i think of that as kind of an a b test versus you know if you think about Orin, the data policy commissioner, who sounds like you would be a little measured in the kinds of imperatives that you would invoke on hospitals or the IRS or individuals. China seems to be taking a more aggressive approach, which, you know, I I don't really judge either way. I think it's an interesting experiment that we have as a countermeasure to to what we're doing in the United States, but I, I haven't I haven't looked into it in detail. I don't I don't know if you have. I don't have enough detail, but it is very very different, and there's a lot more data sharing that happens in China. I would s- expect that it will result in a lot more innovation that will happen around AI. And so, if you, you, you the U.S. is kind of like I would say somewhere between China and the EU on that front. And I think in the EU, I think we'll see a lot less innovation. It's going to be a very, much more difficult to move data around. It's much more difficult to share things or join data. And so it might be harder to do uh, things like machine learning and AI. In China, it's going to be extremely easy to do some of those things. But maybe the U.S. has the right middle ground. I don't know. I, again, this is a little bit above my pay grade. And I think, but regardless, I can, pretty, I can be pretty confident that how wherever we come to as a society today, we'll probably change our mind a bit over over the next few decades as well. And there may be certain benefits and there are certain other types of things. There's also things about security, which I think are important. So really making sure that as a society we're safe, but we also don't want to give up our civil liberties to go do that. So you you have so can, is there a way to do both? I think there might be ways that you can both be secure and have strong civil liberties. You know, if you go, there are certain countries or even cities that you go to where they have cameras everywhere, the cameras are doing facial recognition. Now they know I pick my nose, you know, 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 lots of other types of things. And so these things might, you know, these things might, might really dampen creativity in society. Maybe people don't want to go out. They don't want to, because they might be worried. So there could be, some of these things are good because might, might, might be safety. Some of these things are quite bad. Where, where's the line? Where do you want to draw that? I, I don't know. Again, this is definitely way, way, way. I didn't know we we're going to go there in this, this talk. It's way above my pay grade. <laughs> but what I, 
what I what I am skeptical of is people that have all the answers. This is very hard. It's it's like once you start peeling the onion on this, and I've done I've like read a, I read a decent amount about this. So I'm no means an expert. Once you start peeling the onion, you realize like it's just really hard to under. And you and you talk to one side, and then you talk to the other side. You're like that side has a really good point of view, and then you talk to the other side. You're like that's a really good point of view too. And it's really hard to know um, what the right thing to do is. And, and I think that the location data is fairly insulated from this debate. Location could be, is also, all these things have, have issues around it. Sure. Yeah. I, I just, I think of mapping data. Maps feel like a, a very friendly data set. Well, we have maps, but we also try to understand how people interact with the physical world. And so, you know, that could be extremely scary if you could have a scenario where you could like stalk an ex-lover or something like that. So I think, uh, you know, maybe it's not as as much as local medical data or you can have data that's much more, you know, much more problematic. But or if you had always on data of everything you ever searched for or every, you know, everything you ever browsed, uh, you know, from a browser data or something like that. So there's certainly way more sensitive data sets than, than what we're dealing with. But we're certainly trying to think about it in the right way. It's been about a year since our last show. How has Safecraft evolved since then? Well, we're a 29 person company mostly engineers and product folks here in San Francisco. One of the things, one of our core values at the company is uh, is really about leverage. And this is something where I'm thinking differently than my last company when I was at LiveRamp, is how do you how do you do everything possible to get your employees leverage so that they only work on things that are incredibly hard for them to do and they, as much as possible, don't work on anything else. And... And to me, that's the essence of what everyone should be trying to do is everything that you're doing is really hard. Uh, you should be trying to do things that are really hard for you to do. And and if you're doing something that isn't super hard, you should be trying to figure out a way not to do it, which is actually really hard. <laughs> so trying not to do something that you're doing is almost always certainly hard. So if you're an engineer, you can, um, one way to get leverage is, you know, if you're doing thing that isn't so hard, you can, maybe there's somebody else on the team who's maybe a little bit more junior, maybe they could do it and you can work with them to do it. Maybe you can um, automate it. So maybe you can write scripts or you can do other types of things to make it so you don't have to do that in the future. Maybe there's a vendor that could go do that. So you could go, you have to go figure out, you have to go meet with the vendors, assess the vendors, get them, and then you have to manage the vendor, of course, and manage that. Or, you know, and vendor could just be a piece of open source technology, but all those types of things. Maybe you can outsource it to another company. So if you can leverage up massively, and um, now everyone is doing, is doing just a ton of things, now, the, now you need fewer people to do the same amount of work that another company does. And if you have fewer people, you, you have less communication issues because you're gonna have some sort of like, some no matter how, how good of a company you are, the more people you have in your company, the more communication paths you have and the more communication issues you have. So if you can have fewer people that are, that are levered up, and that probably means you may have to pay these people more because they're probably better. So you may have to 
you know, you may have to pay their salaries a bit more. And it doesn't mean you, you save money. You probably spend more money by having fewer people because you're levering them with other type of technology. You're giving them tools and you're giving them budgets to use to lever themselves up to get them better. But, but you can move faster as a company because you have, you're, you're essentially going to have less communication problems, which means you have less bureaucracy. How did you come to the conclusion that that was going to net you more utility? I want to work on really hard things. I want to work on things that are difficult for me to do. I want to work on things that have a high likelihood of failure. And now I don't want to work on things that have like a 99% likelihood of failure and that's not fun, but I want to work in somewhere, you know, the ELO score, right? So, you know, if you, if you think an ELO score, like if, if you're, if you play somebody who's plus a hundred or you play someone, you know, minus a hundred of you, usually that means you have like a, you know, a two between a one third and two thirds chance of winning. That's a great game, right? Whether you're playing chess, whether you're playing tennis, whether you're playing any, any type of game that you're playing, if you're playing somebody in that band of a hundred points of you on ELO score, you're going to have a lot of fun and it's going to be really hard for you. That's where you're really going to, that's the perfect sweet spot, kind of like the one third, two thirds chance. Everything you should be doing in li- in in life, I think, should be like this. Certainly in work, um, you should be doing things that where you have a relatively high chance of failure, really hard. And so for me, I like working on things that are really hard. And then it turns out the people I like working with also like working on things that are really hard. Most of the best people I've ever worked with in my life want to work on really hard problems that are challenging and difficult, where they don't have a surety of success. So you get interesting people, more interesting people want to do that and then you know for a lot of people it's like they occasionally work on these things that are really hard and you know x percent of their job a lot of their job is kind of like rote and it's like how do you how do you get people now there's this is aspirational you can never get it to like a hundred percent of your time is going to be on things that are really hard you're always going to have some percentage of your time that are going to be things that are a little bit more you know a little bit more manual and stuff you know i still wash the dishes at home so you know you, great time to listen to podcasts yeah it's a great time actually it's a great time to listen to podcasts or talk to your kids or you know other types of things or just you know be with your own thoughts so i don't want to necessarily be like completely optimize my life to like only focus on, you know, super, super hard problems. But the more you can do that in work, at least the more you can do that work, I think the better. And so, so we're, we're trying to develop a way where people understand that they should be, that they should value their own time that their own time is super valuable. You know, people listening to this podcast, especially if they, you know, they're, they're software engineers, you know, the software engineers make a good living. And then think like if the company is going to pay you X dollars, that means the company is probably, you're at least worth 3X to that company. Now start thinking about what's your hourly rate to this company, right? It's a lot of money to this company if you take your 3X, you know, the hours that you do. So you should be, and, and you know, how can you get Get the, you know, think you're, you are so valuable. Anyone listening to this is just such a valuable person. So what can we do to, to, to obviously you want to keep growing. So, in, and probably that's why people listen to this podcast is they want to grow, right? So this is kind of a career podcast in a way. So you want to, you want to grow yourself, which is great. And then you want to lever yourself so you can continue to work on hard, harder things. Azure Container Service simplifies the deployment, management, and operations of Kubernetes. Eliminate the complicated planning and deployment of fully orchestrated, containerized applications with Kubernetes. 
You can quickly provision clusters to be up and running in no time, while simplifying your monitoring and cluster management through auto-upgrades and a built-in operations console. Avoid being locked into any one vendor or resource. You can continue to work with the tools that you already know, such as Helm, and move applications to any Kubernetes deployment. Integrate with your choice of container registry, including Azure Container Registry. Also, quickly and efficiently scale to maximize your resource utilization without having to take your applications offline. Isolate your application from infrastructure failures and transparently scale the underlying infrastructure to meet growing demands, all while increasing the security, reliability, and availability of critical business workloads with Azure. To learn more about Azure Container Service and other Azure services, as well as receive a free ebook by Brendan Burns, go to aka.ms slash sedaily. Brendan Burns is the creator of Kubernetes, and his ebook is about some of the distributed systems design lessons that he has learned building Kubernetes. That ebook is available at aka.ms slash sedaily. Just to echo what you said, you, I don't know if you remember, but you said many of these thoughts in the first interview that we did, the, that Quoracast interview, and that was when I was still at Amazon, and I thought a lot about those things, the, the one-third to two-thirds chance of failure. That was one of the things that was echoing through my head when I started the podcast, because I thought, well, you know, starting a software engineering podcast, can that be a business? Well, one third to two thirds chance seems like that's that <laughs> seems like a reasonable estimation that it, that it could work. So I think that's really good advice. Awesome. I'm glad you did it. By the way, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's 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 worked out well. Even though the first time we met, I remember you you were like you were at Amazon for like five minutes, and I was like, yeah, I guess I was a little embarrassed by that, but I left with good reason. And now you know. <laughs> great company. Amazon's a great company. It is. Too. It sure yeah. is. Very educational. So. You've said that TensorFlow is one of the 10 most important innovations in the last decade, and I've done some shows on TensorFlow in the past. I haven't worked with it personally, but I imagine you must have seen it be pretty useful firsthand at SafeGraph. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I, I mean, I think possible I had a little bit of hyperbole in that blog post that you're <laughs> citing, but it, it is a very, very, very impressive innovation. And Jeff Dean, who's you know, one of the top engineers at Google, who, who led that project, is you know, one, of, one of the smartest people alive, in my opinion. And uh, many of the people on that team especially were are some of the smartest engineers in the world who who worked on that team and kudos to that team who built it and who still are are continuing to develop tools on top of that it's just an you know in, in, incredibly impressive team at google and now there's a broader community because they've they've open sourced it so now there's a broader community as well and it's uh, it really it really is a really good framework for machine learning and a lot of great things are built on it already and I think we're going to see more things built on that in the in the future. You know, from you know, I, I love Google Photos. I just think Google Photos is a fantastic product. I'm a huge fan. Kudos to the, also the product team on that. And you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. Now it has problems. So Google Photos does think my daughter's a cat. <laughs> 
when I type in cat in Google Photos, the, the, all, most of the pictures are of my daughter. So it, it's certainly not perfect. Well, now we know um, how they taught a computer to recognize a cat. Yeah, exactly. You would have thought everything's that, a cat. Yeah, you would have thought that'd been solved by now, honestly. You know, there's so many trading photos with cats, but the fact that Google still thinks my daughter is a cat means it's still an unsolved problem. We're still like way, it's still way far from, from that being a solved problem. But it's a great product and it does a lot of things and it uses TensorFlow. One of the other things that they do, which is really great, well, certainly great for Google, maybe not great for the average person, but Google pushes the processing power for Google Photos to your phone. So instead of having all of it centralized, which is incredibly expensive, both from uh, processing power and also from, from an actual power, they push it to your phone. It's your and it's your phone using you know using your phone's battery and your phone's chip that's actually doing most of the processing on Google Photos. And that's awesome and really really cool. Also, there's a lot of potential things you can do with this. There's a lot of really cool features of TensorFlow where you can start to distribute the processing. And there's a lot of like privacy centric things where you can like keep the data potentially at the nodes as well. So there's a lot of really cool things about, you know, doing that. And there's a lot of ways to do it in a really cheap way. I think we're going to see lots of cool things that happen from like cameras doing really cool stuff in cities um, that can be very privacy centric because they could be doing the the actual compute uh, at the node and they may not sense that that the video streams may never actually get centralized mm-hmm. you published a set of company values recently and from what i know about building company values it can be a very slow and deliberate process and eventually you come to a set of values that define your company in a way that helps guide the employees at the company. What was the process for defining that value set for the company? Well, first, I think values are about trade-offs. So I don't think you can have a value without a trade-off. The values aren't vanilla ice cream. You can't just have a value that everybody likes. So your value should be things that mean you're doing this, which means you're not doing that. Um, we believe in this, which means we don't believe in that. And it can't just be like, we believe in being nice and don't believe in being not nice, right? You know, so you know, it, it's like, what, what do you value? It's like, okay, we value, you know, you can have a scenario where if you think of Facebook's old values, like we move fast and break things, which means like they value speed over potentially maybe elegance or something, right? So there was a, there was a clear thing, at least in the early Facebook, fake, uh, Facebook days of like having that kind of like move fast and break things is a speed over elegance thing. And they were, they're making those trade-offs. Now, maybe later on in Facebook, they actually moved to more of an elegance and they, they said, Hey, for a whole year, we're not going to go do anything and we're going to redo everything. We're going to, and that was their kind of like big move to mobile. And so values can change over time, but I think they need to be somewhat controversial and not, not necessarily in a, in a bad way or something, but they need, they need to, they need to turn some people off that some people who read your value statement should say, I don't want to work at this place. This is a place that isn't for me. If someone reads your values and everyone in the world wants to work there, that means that you're you're just kind of like base case of what you're doing and you're just trying to appeal to everybody. So, you know, we treat everybody respectful. Of course. I mean, uh, yeah, and I'm, I don't want to say of course, because obviously a lot of companies don't treat everyone with respect, but like, of course, every company wants to say they treat everybody with respect. And so, and, and like, and most of the companies that don't treat people with respect 
probably have they treat people with respect as part of their company values. So, right. So, the Enron values. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So right, you're you're exactly right. So I think like having values so I think you can have a company, you know, so like if you had a Silicon Valley company that said that was like, we, we wear ties to work. Like, I think that would actually work really well. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't want to work there or maybe you don't want to work there, but there's probably like some subset of people, maybe there's like a 1% of people will be like so excited to go. When I went, go, you know, and you know, or I, or, or, you know, I wear, or you have to dress up, you have to wear nice clothes, you have to wear business suits or something like that. You have when to I, eat sugar. Yeah, you have to eat sugar. You know, you know, we don't have organic food. You you have to you have to be in your own office. You know, you have to use a Windows machine. You know, whatever. You know, you know whatever it is. You know that that is like you know ant- antithetical to to a startup way for a small number of people. They might find that really exciting and really interesting. And you only have to appeal to a small number of people. I think culture should be where you're different, not where you're the same. Have you ever been to Indian wedding? I've read your core answer about okay. it, but no, I have not. You, well, you, first of all, you need to go. So you need Indian weddings are amazing. They're so much fun. They're incredible. I love going to Indian weddings. Anyone wants to invite me to your Indian wedding, I'm going to just show up. Just invite me. I'll just show up to your new wedding. And I know most of these Indian weddings have like 4,000 people. Anyway, so you won't even know I'm there, except I will be dancing all the time to every Bollywood song that that's out there. But they're 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 very different than traditional American weddings. They're super colorful. You know, American weddings is like the bride wears white and the the, the man. You know, the, the, if the, if there's a groom, is a heterosexual wedding. You know, the groom might wear like gray or something. It's kind of like not. It's kind of boring. And you know, it's just like the the Indian weddings are super colorful. Are beautiful and then everyone is dancing and having fun and it's exciting and it's just it's different if you go to an Indian wedding you you know you're at a different place and it's a different and it's a cultural thing it's a cultural thing that's the way your company should be it should be different not necessarily better I don't, I'm not going to say Indian weddings are better than another type of wedding that's out there they might be but I'm not saying they are but they're different and so and so for a certain type of person they're going to find that those, you know that culture really appealing to them and really exciting for them and that's what companies should strive for is create a culture where a small minority of people are going to love it and it's great for those people and I'm not I'm not talking about like where um, like a, you know it's, it's good for a race or a gender or something like that that's bad but where you know certain people are going to gravitate to certain types of cultures and in a company and your culture should be about trade-offs your values should be about trade-offs What's something that you believe about company building that you didn't believe one year ago when we last spoke? That's a hard question. Well, I don't, I don't remember what I believed a year ago, so but I think this idea around leverage is a very important idea which I don't which I don't think I fully rocked a year ago or maybe just just about the, the you know maybe right around that time. Like how do you give people leverage? How do you grow people? There's another thing which changed my mind about which is around giving feedback. So most of my life, I wanted critical feedback and uh, constructive critical feedback, and I gave critical feedback, constructive critical feedback. So critical feedback is, you know, you're, you know, you see somebody swinging a tennis racket and you say, hey, you know, Jeff, I'm going to give you some tips on how to swing that racket better in a very constructive way. Hey, maybe you know, turn your hips a little bit. Here are some footwork ideas about how to move your footwork a little bit. Hey, you know, you should change your grip slightly. 
to hit the hit the tennis racket better. And I, and I think co- this constructive critical feedback is very important. And I want I'll, I still continue to give it. And I still want to continue to get it. Um, but even more important, I think, is the specific positive feedback. And so the the classic positive feedback is great job. That was a great podcast. You know, it was a great job. Great question. You know, and which is really nice to hear. I think it's important that we all hear. You know, this this positive feedback. But it doesn't really help you be better. It makes you feel good about yourself, which is important. But it doesn't help you be better. The specific positive feedback is: I hit a hundred tennis balls. And by the way, I'm not a very athletic person. I was on the math team, so I had a hundred tennis balls, and you know, by accident, one was good, right? And your videotape. All you know, me hitting all these uh, hundred tennis balls, and one was good. And you stop the videotape, and you start like deconstructing. You're like, did you see how you like you turned your hips like this, and you your hand rolled like this, and your your foot went down like this, and it was like amazing. And it was like maybe it was completely by accident that I did it, but I did it, and that means I can do it again. The fact that I did it once is for sure means I can do it twice, even if it was a complete fluke. So I may not understand why I did well. And I may not, and that's what you're there as a coach is to help me. You're a great tennis coach. You're there, you're there helping me do, and it, it's harder to give specific positive feedback because you have to be much more observant. You have to watch what I do. <clears throat> you may have to see me do screw up a lot. If I play tennis, you're gonna have to watch me screw up a ton before I do the right thing. But it can be so impactful when it's done in the right way. I wouldn't say that I'm, this is, I, this is also aspirational for me. I, I wouldn't say yet that I'm great at giving specific positive feedback, but I'm trying to get better. This is an area that I, in my life that I'm trying to get better at doing. And I certainly love when I get it. It's very, very helpful. There's certainly been what, what I call, you've probably seen this before, but the the great question inflation where on any podcast you're listening to the the person who's being interviewed will typically say great question one, <laughs> between one and eight times during an interview and sometimes they will literally say it for every question so you just know that some kind of inflation has occurred uh, do you have any i was going to ask you if you had any non-obvious ideas about this space because i i like the 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 self-description of the non-obvious yeah. <laughs> uh, liking of ideas that you uh, you had on your Quora profile for a while back in the day. But now I'm tempted to ask it because you mentioned that Raj Chetty thing earlier. Have you read anything non-obvious recently that stood out to you? Like any any good books or resources that you would recommend that are, have been particularly thought-provoking to you? Okay, well, I have to say great question to that. So... <laughs> By the way, saying great question is a really, it's just a good tick to allow you to just collect your sure, thoughts, sure. right? And I mean, yeah. no, I mean, yeah. uh, you, we have these ticks yeah. and yeah. it's totally and it's, fine. It's helpful. Like something you're, you're, when you, when you ask, when you ask some sort of question that people haven't totally thought through, they need to think about it and they need to give themselves as much time as possible. They don't want to sound stupid. Well, what I'll say is if you pause, <laughs> if you just pause instead of great question, it adds more gravitas to whatever you say next. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, see, that's great feedback. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to do that in the future. That's really good feedback. I think that's a hard question. So I, I love reading. For I love Quora. So I like reading Quora. I think Quora is a great place to read. I find really interesting things. I also love Medium. So I find really interesting and fascinating things to read on Quora and Medium. I tend to really like answers and and questions there and just 
what people write on those places because they're fairly succinct. And so if you think of just information over time, it's just a high information quantity over time. But there are some things that really only a book can, can do justice because you really have to dive in and, and move around on the book. And I've read some you know, fantastic books recently that I would recommend that maybe are not engineering-oriented books, but great books. Uh, I loved uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I just thought that was a fin- beautiful, beautiful book, fantastic book, very interesting, really changed the way, that of, of, the way I thought about a lot of different issues, a lot of different things. Um, so I thought it was a really interesting book about society in general. That's a great book. And there's a lot of other books I'm, I'm a big fan of. So I, I like books that are uh, grappling with big questions of the world. There's a fun book called Justice by Mike Sandel. That's a fun book to read where um, he's the, he teaches, I think, the intro to philosophy course at Harvard. He's a, a professor. And he just kind of like goes over a bunch of different ethical dilemmas. Some are fairly well known. You know, the, there's, a, there's a person and there's a, you know, a switch. And, you know, if you push the person and hit the switch and you'll save a bunch of kids' lives. You know, right. we, we all heard some of the these questions. Problem. The trolley problem, right? Exactly. So we, we've heard some of these questions. But it goes into a depth about a lot of different types of things. And it's just fun and interesting. It allows you to think about the world in a different way. For for my job, I like I like these types of things to help me get my head a little bit out of my job, to think about other types of things. If there's another book I could recommend to people, I really like Difficult Conversations. Have you read that book? Uh, I actually read the first, well, because uh, I saw the some of the books that you recommended a while ago on Quora, and that was one of them. And I think I listened to two or three hours of the first you know the the first two or three hours on audible it was useful it was useful for me it's actually a great book to listen to because they actually go through the question yeah and so they have the conversation (laughs) so i i I actually think if you know some books you might want to read versus listen to that's one i would i would optimize to listen to and you know probably a lot of your probably a lot of your listeners if they're interested in business have read zero to one by peter Thiel or the hard thing about hard things by ben horowitz but those are just zero to one is the best strategy book that i can think of in startups the hard thing about hard things is the best kind of tactics book and uh and they're actually really good companion books to read together so i would certainly recommend those two books to any of your listeners okay last question i I know we're a little bit over time but i had to ask you this because i saw this like fictional piece that you wrote recently <laughs> and it reminded me of the the time when you at and I think I think it was in our interview or you said it on core or something where you said you wanted to be a novelist but it was something you had resigned yourself to you were just not going to do it because you yeah, decided right. there were specific things in your life as badly as you wanted to do them it was like your your Buffett rule like the the things you know you write down the 30 things that you want to do and pick out the two that you absolutely are going to do and throw away the other ones novel was like number five or six but it seems like i don't know you at least wrote a short story are you are you reconsidering i'm not reconsidering the novel even though i still would love to write one i just i don't think it's ever going to be in my top 20 priorities the great thing about writing a short short so i i haven't written fiction probably since high school i'm 43 years old so this is a long time since i've you know 25 years or so since i've written fiction and it's 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 a wonderful thing to do and it really it really just helps me relax and think about things some people like to paint some people like to garden so it's a real and then i also really wanted to explore 
new issues. And so in this particular fiction piece, I, I want to explore, could people in China take over Bitcoin and what would happen if that would happen? So just kind of a scenario. I have one right now that I'm working on about medical ethics, and I wanted to explore some of the ideas around medical ethics. And you can explore them through prose and through nonfiction. You can explore those also. But I thought it'd be a fun way to explore these things through fiction, through making up some fun characters, doing fun things. And I, now I, I, I don't necessarily necessarily suggest your listeners read it because it's not very good and i, I, kinda, I, I honestly I, disagree with that like <laughs> it was a, it was helpful for me to understand proof of work versus proof of stake and some reasons why you should move to proof of stake arguably I honestly thought it was really useful. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. Uh, I, I've had I've had a few people who actually know how to write fiction, who are like, yeah, it wasn't that good. They were they were pretty they were pretty. They gave me some good brutal feedback, but I also wanted to just put it out there and let people, if they want to destroy it and say it's bad, that's helpful for me. It makes me better writer, and uh, I, I don't have any illusions of becoming a, a writer or a screenplay, or, you know, or anything like that. That's not what I, you know. So so it's 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 also really it's easy it's also easy to go do things and put something out there if it's not really part of your identity and you know paul graham has this great post you probably read it about keeping your identity small and which uh, for those of your those of your readers who um, those of your listeners who haven't read that i would i would just google paul graham keep keep your identity small it's fantastic it's this beautiful essay that he wrote maybe 10 years ago and so uh it's a lot easier to get criticism on things when it's not part of your identity and being a, a writer is not part of my identity. Certainly being a fiction writer is not. So, uh, whereas, you know, somebody started criticizing me closer to home, I might clam up and, you know, et cetera, like, like most humans would do something like that. So it's a really great, uh, so for me, getting that feedback is really helpful. Okay. Oren Hoffman, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Users have come to expect real time. They crave alerts that their payment is received. They crave little cars zooming around on the map. They crave locking their doors at home when they're not at home. There's no need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to making your app real-time. PubNub makes it simple, enabling you to build immersive and interactive experiences on the web, on mobile phones, embedded into hardware, and any other device connected to the internet. With powerful APIs and a robust global infrastructure, you can stream geolocation data, you can send chat messages, you can turn on sprinklers, or you can rock your baby's crib when they start crying. PubNub literally powers IoT cribs. 70 SDKs for web, mobile, IoT, and more means that you can start streaming data in real time without a ton of compatibility headaches. And no need to build your own SDKs from scratch. And lastly, PubNub includes a ton of other real-time features beyond real-time messaging, like presence for online or offline detection, and access manager to thwart trolls and hackers. Go to pubnub.com slash sedaily to get started. They offer a generous sandbox tier that's free forever until your app takes off, that is. pubnub.com slash sedaily, that's p-u-b-n-u-b dot com slash sedaily, Thank you, PubNub, for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Wow!